This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Okay, here we go. Stand by. Three, two, one. The Thinking Atheist. It's not a person. It's a symbol. An idea. The population of atheists in this country is going through the roof. Rejecting faith. Pursuing knowledge. Challenging the sacred. If I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth. Not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. And working together for a more rational world. Take the risk of thinking for yourself. Much more happiness, truth, beauty, and wisdom will come to you that way. Assume nothing. Question everything. And start thinking. This is the Thinking Atheist Podcast. Hosted by Seth Andrews. My very special guest today has a PhD in religion from Emory University. He has a Master's of Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also a computer guy and a math guy. He's got a bachelor's in computing science and mathematics from Mississippi College. He is president and founder of PRRI, the Public Religion Research Institute. He has had his work and perspectives uh, featured on outlets like uh, Time Magazine, The Atlantic, CNN, NPR, The New York Times. He is author of several books, including the one I want to speak about most today. It is The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. His name is Dr. Robert P. Jones, and I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. I understand why you didn't go with Bob Jones. Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, it's funny, like in print, I try to make sure, yes, it is Robert P. Now, I have to explain that for those who aren't familiar with who Bob Jones is, but uh, he was an evangelist and racist. Uh, was a big sort of a mega preacher in the early 20th century, and uh, he founded Bob Jones University. He received money from the Klan. I think he supported a racist governor. So Robert Jones seems like a pretty good move, but I'm glad That's you're good. here. Matt. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Or Robbie, just not Bob. Yeah. Uh, can I call it? I'll just call you Rob. I heard Robbie, but I'm not sure. I mean, I, I you know, I'm just not sure I want to like, do I know you well enough? I was going to say, it depends <laughs> on whether you want people to think you know me. I, I go by okay. Robbie uh, for everybody who knows me. So. All right. Well, uh, let me just start, lay the uh, groundwork. This is not an ambush. I just want to know. Are you a religious person? I saw theologian, but, uh, you know, are you a God believer? What's that look like, et cetera? Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about that. 
So I grew up in the church. I was that kid who was at church like five days a week, even as a teenager, um, you know, member of the youth group. I went to a Southern Baptist college where I did study math and computer science, but nonetheless, it was a religious institution. I went to a Southern Baptist seminary and was actually going to be a minister and then did a PhD in religion, decided that I'd rather study religion than preach religion. But, you know, to this day, yeah, no, I'm still a religious person. I would say I'm Christian. That's about the the only descriptor I think I can, you know, I'm not really connected to a denomination. My wife's Jewish. We actually attend an interfaith congregation here in Washington, D.C. It's interesting that, um, inter- like, you're not connected with a specific denomination. Do I sense... You're disenfranchised with the church, like formal religion, you know, they they driven you out or I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist, you know, and in that very conservative evangelical world in Mississippi. So it was deep, deep in that world. And like I said, I even went to Southern Baptist Seminary. And I think that was the kind of the break, you know, from the denominational world of, of my youth was really getting a sense of how entangled our denomination had been in, in white supremacy. I mean, the very beginning of the Southern Baptist Convention, in fact, what the word Southern means in Southern Baptist Convention is essentially support for a slaveholding society, right? The whole reason they were formed was to make enslaving other people based on the color of their skin compatible with the gospel as they understood it. That's what the Southern means in Southern Baptist. So, you know, that was sort of a shocker to really get the truth about that actually in seminary. Then the seminary and the whole denomination just became so embroiled with the Christian right political movement and continued to move to the right, continued to kind of double down on white supremacy and racism. It just wasn't something I could continue being a part of. And I I guess there hasn't been any other, you know, formal denominational entity that has really felt like the right place for me. So I'm happy to kind of stay outside of the denominational world. But but I am, you know, a member of a congregation here in D.C. that is the, the Interfaith Families Project. As you talk a lot about white supremacy, the focus of your book, there's, of course, we have to go back to uh, probably the most prominent discussions we have about American white supremacy revolve around the Civil War, although we have to go back much further. But I'm reminded of that story by the Reverend, I want to say his name is Vero or Verotes at the Church of Augustine. This is like 1861. He's preaching out of Colossians. Servants, obey in all things your masters. And he was using the Bible to defend the owning of slaves by white people. Of course, we jump up to Exodus. You know, we talk a lot about uh, Exodus 21. Slaves are beaten by their masters according to God's command. We're seeing a lot throughout our history and even in contemporary headlines, people waving the Bible to excuse the oppression of non-whites. You want to speak to that? Well, it's, you know, unfortunately been such a part of European, you know, Christianity all the way back. And I think it's one of the things I try to do in the new book, um, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. And and the reason why I called it The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy is I really wanted to trace that thread back, you know, at least to the kind of its proximate cause in the Americas. Um, And, you know, it, it goes way before the Civil War. It is the version of Christianity that lands on these shores, you know, in the Americas, not just in America, but in the Americas. You know, so I, in the book, I, I trace it back to 1493, and you could certainly go further back than that. But again, trying to get the kind of closest proximate cause to the version of Christianity that landed here with this colonizing white supremacist 
you know, mindset really is connected to Columbus and the edicts um, that he was seeking from the Christian church. These were not taught to me, you know, in seminary. I didn't learn it about it um, in any religious history classes, really, that I that I had. But I think it's so important for how it set the moral compass. These things were called the Doctrine of Discovery, and it was a set of 15th century documents that really spelled out in black and white that if European Christians discovered lands and peoples, and those people were not Christian, then they had the right and the blessing of the church to occupy the lands, to take their goods, uh, and the documents even spell out and to submit them their persons to perpetual slavery, right? This is from the hand of the Pope in the 15th century. And again, this is the attitude, the way that Christianity, the dominant really attitude and, and orientation of European Christianity that it landed here far be before, you know, the American project got off the ground. Well, if I can jump in quickly, I mean, it sounds like the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, like they go find those who are the other, the non-tribes, and they claim that this is our land and we are the chosen and it's our party. And so you either submit or are slaughtered or, you know, are oppressed in some way. And so my point is, I, I see a lot of the weaponization of Scripture to excuse Christian supremacy, if not white supremacy. I mean, that's not unfair, is it? No, I, I think that's been really the, you know, the temptation has always been, you know, the, the words you see over and over throughout history. And this is, you know, not just in religion, but you see it in American law as well. You know, this idea of the superiority of Christianity and the superiority of European civilization go right together. And you'll see that phrase, Christianity and civilization, as the legitimizing reason for enslaving people from Africa, for genocide among the indigenous people here and forced removal of indigenous people here. It was based on, I mean, the language you'll see is just this overt uh, thing. They'll, you know, they'll even say like, based on the superior genius, you know, of the people of Europe and the Christian faith, that was the reason given for all kinds of domination and, and violence. But as an egalitarian Christian, you're a, a humanist Christian. How do you reconcile that with the scriptures? Do you feel like it's a context problem or, or something else? No, I mean, I, I think it's important for us to be honest um, that, that these uh, these passages are there, right? That, that the scripture is shot through, um, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament are shot through with, you know, these texts that can be used you know, this way. And you, you've got, it, it's interesting, like one, one artifact I came across, which I think tells part of the story is that Christians have always wrestled, you know, with this, that there are liberating texts uh, in, 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 in the Bible and there are oppressive texts in the Bible. And like one of the starkest recognitions of this, I, you know, I've ever seen in kind of a physical artifact was a Bible that Fisk University has in its collections. And it was a Bible printed to be used with European slaveholders and enslavers uh, with people in the West Indies. Uh, and it says this right up front, you know, for use with enslaved people in the West Indies by missionaries. And what they had done is and they had gone through the text and they had, they had left in all the parts like you read about beating slaves, uh, slaves obey your masters, like those kinds of messages they left in the text, but they actually cut out of the text all the other things that were like, you know, in Christ, there are no slave nor Greek. That's gone. No male, no female. No female. That's gone. Um, the the entire story of the liberation of the slaves in the Book of Exodus. That's gone. So they just literally excised. They kept all the kind of 
hierarchical, obedient pieces and left out the liberating uh, piece. So I think, you know, it's important to just be honest that both of those things are there in the text. I'm reminded of that quote by Susan B. Anthony. She said, I distrust those people who know so well what God wants them to do because I notice it always coincides with their own desires. It's a setup. It sounds like a setup. We're going to go out and discover something that has actually already been discovered where there are indigenous people already, but we will say, okay, now that we've discovered it, what, we must claim it in the name of God? I mean, it sounds like a setup. Am I reading that wrong? No, I mean, I think it was, we, we think about uh, like, you know, the story of Christopher Columbus that's taught in American uh, schools. And then the year is usually 1492. That's the year he arrives. Now he doesn't know where he is, of course, at the time he thinks he's in India, but he's not. He's, you know, somewhere near the Bahamas. But nonetheless, we learn about that. But what we don't learn about is like, you know, what happens when he goes back that next year. And that's why in the book, I talk a lot about 1493, because that's the year that he asked for this moral mandate, not just more supplies, more ships, but also more missionaries, more soldiers, and this moral mandate. And it's the Christian church that gives it to him. And that really, it's important to realize, I mean, that really is the power that unleashes the violence is is that this kind of moral mandate, right? And it's no longer just a pure Machiavellian, you know, military conquest. It's something then that is seen to be in line with the will of God that has been declared to be aligned with European material interests. A friend of mine, uh, another author who writes a lot about Christian nationalism, Catherine Stewart, refers often to the culture wars. That's a term we hear quite a bit. I'm just going to toss that into your courts. Can you sort of speak to how you would define the culture wars? Yeah, you know, I think it's been shifting a bit. And, you know, we used to talk about this, you know, 10, 20 years ago as battles around sexuality. It was kind of abortion, same-sex marriage. I mean, these were getting when people used culture wars. Those are the next two words that usually came out of their mouths. I think we're seeing a much bigger kind of stage that these kind of debates are being car- and battles are being carried out on today. And, and, and I, in many ways, they're going back to, I think, the deeper roots. And I think the question today, uh, when we talk about culture wars, to me, what it, it is this fight over, in the U.S. anyway, who is really an American, who is truly an American, who gets to be an American. And these are things shot through with race and religion and back to this old, old declaration, you know, that the country was really intended to be a kind of promised land for European Christians and that everyone else here is is some kind of second or third tier status compared to European Christians. So I think a lot of the things we're seeing today, the fights over what, what history we're teaching to our kids, what books are in our kids' libraries, immigration. These are all really battles in many ways to kind of hold on to this old view of the country, you know, as essentially a white Christian country versus one that's a religiously pluralistic and racially and ethnically pluralistic country. A longtime friend and friend of this show, constitutional attorney Andrew Seidel has a great line. He says, the minute that America becomes a Christian nation, it will cease to be America. Agree, disagree? Well, it'll certainly cease to be um, democratic, uh, anything that looks like a democratic country. I think it's worth saying that, yeah, this vision of America as a Christian nation, which we're hearing more and more of, and we will hear undoubtedly in 2024 as the presidential campaigns get revved up, we will hear about this over and over again, from certainly from the Trump campaign. 
you know, it's important to say that this this vision of the country as a, you know, European Christian country is fundamentally antithetical to democracy. These two things can't exist together. They are really, um, you know, one is fundamentally opposed to the other. And I think we've just got to be really clear about that, that when people start making claims about this country being a, a Christian country. And by the way, when they say that, they almost always inevitably mean white Christian country. That's an anti-democratic claim, and it's a claim that undermines American democracy. Our uh, new speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, he's a piece of work. As I recall, I think he's another fan of pseudo-historian David Barton, a guy with no formal training in history, but who has been writing about everything from the Founding Fathers to the Constitution. Have you done any research, any digging into Barton, et cetera, the history revisionists, at least? Yeah, you know, even to put the word historian in the same sentence with him, even with the word pseudo in front of it, uh, you know, feels generous. <laughs> I've got to say, um, I mean, it, it is, you know, this is someone who's had even a Christian publisher have to pull some of his books because he fabricated quotes from uh, the founding fathers to kind of build his case. Just someone with no credentials through no, no real historian takes seriously. And yet here we are, we've got the person who is second in line to the presidency now, uh, Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House, who you know has talked about how influential David Barton has been on his life and in his thinking. Barton and his ilk deny the separation of church and state exists. That isn't anywhere you know uh, that we can find as a legitimate idea. And just do assert that this that the founders had in mind this idea that the country should be a Christian country and try to lay claim to that today. And that's you know the new Speaker of the House is really. You know, supporting those ideas. That should be deeply troubling to everyone in the country, again, anyone who cares about the country as being a democracy. More to come with Dr. Robert P. Jones, author of the book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy. We continue next. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
talking here with author Dr. Robert P. Jones. By the way, do you do you use the P when you're introduced, like Robert P. Jones, Robert Jones? What do you like? I usually use the P. My name's so common. Uh, I usually do use the P in introduction. Robert P. Jones, the uh, book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. In the book, you reference a 2016 opinion survey. And I think this is fascinating. The question was, do you think the American culture and way of life has changed for the better or for worse since the 1950s? I guess this sort of relates to the old, uh, the good old days, you know, simpler times back when people had a work ethic. They worked hard and children said yes, sir, and no, sir, and respected their elders. And there wasn't any of that filth on the radio and television, you know, the, sort of this wholesome Norman Rockwell painting of our past. In the survey, who answered with what? America, better or worse? What did your findings say? Yeah, you know, well, we wrote that question precisely to try to get at, you know, that this sensibility. You often hear people talk about, yeah, you know, we didn't lock our doors and, you know, all those things that you just mentioned this kind of nostalgist, rose-colored view of the past. And for many white Americans, uh, you know, that 1950s era is it. So we, we actually put that in the question to kind of see how that might divide the country. So it turns out the country is fairly evenly divided on that question, but it is divided along lines of race and religion and party. So, you know, it, it, the two parties look like mirror images of each other on that question. Overwhelming majorities of Democrats say uh, that things have changed for the better. Uh, since the 1950s, overwhelming majorities of Republicans say the opposite, that things have changed for the worse. When you look at religious groups, it's notable that it, it's white Christian groups that stand out as saying that things have changed for the worse since the 1950s, and no group more than white evangelical Protestants, who are you know somewhere, depending on the survey, seven and ten, three quarters, uh, likely to say that things have changed for the worse since the 1950s. I think that tells you, you know, quite a lot. Um, their numbers were up mid 20th century. Um, it was kind of the kind of height of, you know, of churches being full after the war, churches being built everywhere. And of course, it was pre civil rights era, you know, and this was still segregation. And I think that's, that's notable. That's what many white Christians are looking back to and say, yeah. Um, and I think a lot of this is, is because of the dwindling numbers of white Christians. I should make sure I say that this kind of aging and graying phenomenon of white Christians in the country. 20 years ago, white Christians were a majority of the country. Um, today, they're only 42% of the country. And if we would look at white evangelicals, again, 20 years ago, they were about a quarter of the country. Today, they're about half that, 13.6% of the country. And their median age is now 56. So they're kind of aging and graying. And I think that is also setting off these fits of nostalgia, these kind of acts of desperation to try to hold on to their place, you know, at the top of the pyramid that they they feel like they deserve. In fact, many of them feel like is divinely ordained that that's where they'll be. But but see the country shifting all around them. I'm you know struck by how we often romanticize the past. Anyway, you know, we sort of soft focused. Uh, I think there there have been studies about how we often will view the the merits of the past, the good things, and we sort of brush aside all of the other. You uh, refer in the book to a democratic society built on a foundation of mass racial violence. Europeans arrive, we kick the hell out of the Native Americans. Before we talk about that, let's deal with this idea that democratic society grown out of toxic roots. So what would you say if someone accused you of being 
an enemy of American democracy, right? Dr. Jones hates American democracy. What would you say? Yeah, I'd say they don't understand patriotism. You know, I think if we really love our country and love the place we live, we're going to want to be honest about it. And we're going to want to build a future that's not based on a lie. So I, I think that's really what's motivating a lot of my writing is to try to tell the truth about and, and to get a better understanding of how we got here. And for particularly for people who look like me, who come from kind of white Christian background, we've never told the truth. Uh, we've always told these kind of impossible myths of innocence where we're always the heroes. We're always generous. You know, we've never told the truth about indigenous people, about enslavement, always tried to kind of candy coat and all of that. And I think it's really important if we're going to live into, again, a kind of multi-ethnic, multi-religious democracy, we can't do that with this foundation built on a lie, particularly about ourselves. We're going to have to tell the truth and use that as the basis for coming into a more honest relationship with our fellow Americans. No, the That's book banners are not going to be happy with you. The people the who were there, who are trying to get rid of the books that inconvenience them, right. Yeah. That aren't, I mean, because they, they say, well, if you acknowledge the atrocities of our past, the mistakes of this country and our history books, well, we need to either use white out and I just gave away my age or you ban the book. This is another example of Barton-esque revisionist history. You've been watching the book bans. What's your take? Yeah, you know, I, again, I think you know, if you, when you ask, like, why now, right? Why in 2023, 2022? Why are we seeing this now? And I, I think it is this combination of a racial reckoning that we've been having in this country, um, you know, with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, it has been asking difficult questions of the country, and we've been reckoning with this history. Statues are coming down that stood for a century after the civil, you know, that were put up actually in the early nineteen, early twentieth century, but to valorize the Confederacy and and white supremacy, those statues are finally coming down, and we're reevaluating our history, and we're doing it at a time again when kind of white Christians are no longer the majority. Uh, in the country. So longer really have just outright sheer numbers to prevent this kind of reckoning from happening in the country. So where they do have the numbers sometimes is at the local level. And I think that's where we're seeing, you know, this real attempt to like literally whitewash history to kind of hold on to these myths um, and to prevent, you know, their kids from asking challenging questions. This takes us back to Charlottesville, of course, the 2017 white supremacist rally, and they're screaming, the Jews will not replace us. People are talking about the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue. I think they melted it down for repurposing. They did, just this year. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Have they decided what they're going to do with it yet? I, I haven't seen that headline. They didn't. You know, the, when, uh, I believe what they said, they've melted it down into these ingots. So they held, they held on to it. They didn't just outright destroy it, but they melted it down. And there's a process going on. They're working with the city um, and there's a process going on. An African-American history museum and, and the city are going through a process of what to make out of this new, out of the same material, but make something new that's more inclusive and that speaks to all of the local res residents. You hear about, you know, like the Marjorie Taylor Greens, et cetera, who were like, they're trying to erase our heritage or, you know, our part of our, our history. And uh, mm -hmm. somebody said once that, you know, Germany outlawed all Nazi symbols on display, which is why no one remembers who Hitler was, right? <laughs> Just, <laughs> I never understood that we have to remember our heritage. If nothing else, put it in a museum that teaches 
American history in context of white supremacy, but why do we have to celebrate the oppressors of other people? Don't let me trespass, Dr. Jones, but you mentioned that your wife is Jewish. I want to talk about Hamas, Palestine, Israel. Zionists, especially in the Christian context, believe that Israel is a kind of Jewish holy mountaintop, right? This is a sovereign Jewish state. It is fulfilled prophecy, but also a precursor to the end times. Uh, here in the States, I'm seeing a split. I see some Christians who are absolutely, without caveat, pro-Israel. I will have no discussion, Israel, Israel, Israel. But I'm also seeing a divide with other Christians who are, I mean, anti-Jewish hate has exploded in the United States. I know these are conversations you've had. Do you want to speak to this rise of anti-Jewish sentiment in this country? Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you mentioned uh, Charlottesville, right? Um, it's 2017 um, that we heard. I mean, I remember hearing that for the first time. I remember thinking like, wait, what? Did I, did I hear that right? What did they just say? And they were literally chanting, Jews will not replace us in Charlottesville as they're marching around the statue of Robert E. Lee. And I just remember that being a real marker uh, for me and for many people. I, I've interviewed a lot of people since then, and they will often mention Charlottesville as a kind of wake up moment for them. We're realizing, okay, I can't just kind of pretend this is the same old, same old something different is arising here. And so, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, you, you've seen from government reports, ADL, other places, all reporting hate crimes are up against Jews in the country, vandalism of synagogues. I mean, all of that is arising and it's, it's really connected. It's funny, there's, there's kind of these two things going on here at the same time. One of them is the kind of open white supremacy that I think it's fair to say that President Trump really helped unleash. It's not that he created it, it was certainly there, but unleashed into the public by, I think, uh, wink, wink, nod, nod, saying things like, well, there were fine people on both sides after Charlottesville, not being willing to clearly denounce white supremacy. That, I think, gave open space you know, for it to kind of come out into the open, for people to be more bold. If I may jump in, Dr. Jones, I know uh, Trump used the word vermin. I think it was Hitler who had called yeah. the Jews rodents or vermin in Mein Kampf. He's talking about the contamination, the poisoning of the national blood or bloodline, very Nazi-esque language. Yeah. No, I, I wrote a piece on my Substack newsletter last week about this. And again, I think this is another time when we have to kind of pause and realize, okay, this is just, this is not the same old, same old, even from Trump, or even as, as many outlandish things as he said uh, on an almost weekly basis, this is something different. Um, and I actually went in that piece and I looked at Mein Kampf and uh, you're exactly right. I mean, there, this echoes his language. He talked about yeah, poisoning the blood of the, this metaphorical as if, as if the blood, the country has blood that needs to remain pure and that immigrants are poisoning the blood of the country. Uh, he called leftists, Marxist, communist vermin, which is a Mein Kampf uses that or rats in a number of ways to talk about Jews in Europe at the time. And it echoes the language of Mein Kampf in very disturbing ways and not just kind of vague ways and in very close ways. And that, that piece, I actually go in and, um, and show you the tight connections there. It, it's, uh, I mean, I, I just, Title, you know, with Vermin, Trump, you know, ventures fully into Nazi territory. Talking here with author and extremely smart person, Dr. Robert P. Jones, as I continue to monopolize your time. 
I want to talk about something, and you spend a lot of time in the book, speaking to the murder of Emmett Till. Now, I'm not asking you to read the book for everybody, but can you kind of frame that for me? Talk to me about Emmett Till. So Emmett Till, you know, was a 14-year-old boy from Chicago, visited the Mississippi Delta. So that's my home state. And this was 1955, and he was murdered for allegedly whistling at a white woman in a store, a kind of local general store, by two white men who later confessed to the crime. They were acquitted before they confessed. The jury met for all of 67 minutes, acquitted them, and then they later confessed to the crime. And, you know, no justice was ever done there. And it's a story that, well, it sparked really in many ways the modern civil rights movement. Rosa Parks said she had Emmett Till on her mind when she was doing uh, the, the kind of bus boycott work in Montgomery. Martin Luther King referenced him in speeches. And as a matter of fact, the, early, the first version of the I Have a Dream speech mentions Till, Emmett Till in, in that speech. And yet, you know, when I grew up in Mississippi, it wasn't a story I really knew and wasn't taught. So even though people all over the world knew the story, there really wasn't anything going on in Mississippi. So in the book, I tell the story of this group of people, kind of a group of black and white citizens that came together in the Mississippi Delta to try to make sure his story was told at the local level in the Mississippi Delta as, again, a way of kind of reckoning with this past, telling the truth, apologizing to the Till family that justice wasn't done and trying to tell the truth to a new generation. This is a near parallel to an experience that I had. Mm. I'm born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was 39 before I ever heard of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Right? It was never taught in our history class. The media never referenced. It was like revision by omission. Let's talk about Greenwood and the Tulsa Race Massacre. Right. Well, like you said, it's, it's there. You could tell the story in, in virtually every, well, really every state. These stories of white racial violence against either indigenous people or African-Americans or both, that then just gets erased and written out of history. So, you know, in, in Tulsa, yeah, there was this thriving kind of middle-class area that was dubbed Black Wall Street and a whole part of town that was essentially burned to the ground and uh, upwards of 300 African-Americans lost their lives over a period of a couple of days when there was just widespread writing. These were essentially black Tulsans killed by their white neighbors over a couple of days. It was built on a lie, right? It, the story yeah. was there was a young black man in an elevator who had accosted a white woman, and there was no proof for any of that. And uh, that story catches fire, and before you know it, he's arrested. People are circling the jail, wanting to lynch the guy. I mean, it's just insane. And it's, yeah. so I, it was like they were looking for an excuse yeah, to absolutely. go and, and he's later released. So it was essentially incited by the newspapers and local leaders. And exactly, it was kind of a, you know, it was a tinderbox. And it's worth noting, it was sort of after soldiers were returning from World War I, uh, many black soldiers who had served in the war. And this was the truth in the 20s across the country that wasn't just Tulsa, uh, Chicago, Washington, uh, many, many other towns erupted in these really white racial violence attacking African-Americans who really came back from serving their country. And that was part of the milieu and also expecting jobs. And whites were expecting to kind of recreate Jim Crow, even after this experience of African-Americans risking their lives and giving their lives for the country. And it created this th these conflicts. Many when many African-Americans were refusing to go back to this kind of white supremacist status quo. 
And I think that was kind of the tinderbox in, in Tulsa as well. But yeah, the white citizens took full advantage of it. I'm struck by Tulsa because, you know, it's one thing to have kind of people lose their minds and it kind of be one burst of mindless violence. But over Tulsa, it took place over a couple of days, which means that like people were out in the streets, killing people, maiming people, burning down things, went home to their families, got dinner, put their kids to bed, went to sleep and got up the next morning and did it again. Right. And I think that's something quite different, that it was a very willful, deliberate effort to really eradicate the African-American presence in Tulsa. If anybody ever passes through, there is a really compelling museum. It's called uh, Greenwood Rising that tells the story of the Tulsa race massacre. When I continue with Dr. Robert Jones, I'm going to talk about this sort of redrawing of the district lines to lock out specific voters, often voters of color. Gerrymandering is next. Hang on. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Thank you so much for listening to the broadcast today. I'm talking with Dr. Robert Jones, who has a Ph.D. in religion, a Master of Divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a mathematician, and he's author of a book, which is called The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. So we talk about uh, how history is often written by the ruling class. You're a numbers guy. You're a math guy. I'll call you a math geek, Dr. Jones. You're watching the gerrymandering. You're watching how Mm. people are redistricting to try to lock out people of color. First of all, define gerrymandering for those who may not know, and then what your perception is on that. Yeah. If you look at it on a map, you can see a gerrymandered district because it looks like, you know, it was drawn by somebody with a blindfold. It doesn't look like, you know, you think of a district in your mind as something coherent, cohesive, that you could maybe draw a circle around or at least a square around. And these are like these weird, elongated, kind of geographically nonsensical things. And they're basically designed to dilute the power of minority votes and to kind of load all the minority votes into one district so they only get one representative instead of maybe controlling two. That's basically what gerrymandering is, is an attempt to kind of dilute the vote, particularly of voters of color. And I think we're going to see more and more of this. And again, I think the reason is because of the shifting demographics. 
in the country. Again, you know, uh, white Christians who used to just have super majorities everywhere, pretty much, now are 42% of the country and can't rely on sheer numbers to control the political outcomes anymore. And so we're going to see more things like voter suppression, just outright trying to prohibit voters of color from voting. I mean, part, if you really pay attention to, you know, the way the kind of big lie was constructed or, you know, that, that Trump was this kind of false assertions that the 2020 election was stolen from him was all built around minority districts. Almost all the, all the districts he was challenging were black and brown voters and asserting that they were illegitimate voters in those places. So it's all kind of around really white supremacy is the, the most straightforward way of, uh, and preserving white supremacy, white supremacist results uh, when there aren't enough white voters to actually do it by democratic means. Before we put a punctuation mark on this and sort of hit the book, here's a hot button. I'll just toss it out. Some might accuse us of participating in what they would call white guilt. This is a common MAGA complaint. I hear it. You know, I, I didn't oppress the Native Americans. I never owned slaves. I rebuke bigotry. I, I don't think, you know, I'm not, I, I didn't do the things that my ancestors did. And to a degree, I get that. I understand. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not going to apologize for the accident of my birth any more than I would condemn anybody else for who they are. I see us all as the human condition. But as part of the white privilege demographic, do you and I bear some kind of responsibility for the sins of the fathers? What do you think? Well, the Bible would say so. Um, <laughs> the first thing I would say, for, most often those objections come from you know, white Christian people. But I, I think this idea of systemic oppression, how it goes down from generation to generation, even seven generations down, right, is clearly in the text. But, you know, it's also common sense. And I can just give you, I'll give you straight examples from my family. My, my family's not wealthy. Both of my parents were the first ones to go to college. My dad, after 15 years of night school in their, you know, my entire extended family. So, you know, we don't come from a lot of money, but yet if I kind of go back, so how did my dad go to school? He went on the GI Bill which was not available to many veterans of color, explicitly excluded from them. Um, they got FHA, FHA loans to buy a house early on. And again, through practices of redlining, uh, where the federal government explicitly supported not giving loans to non-white people in, in what were deemed to be white neighborhoods. This is something my family benefited from. Uh, if we go all the way back to the first property my family owned in Georgia back in the 1800, early 1800s, we got free land, 200 acres of free land. My most direct ancestor back in 1815 gets free land uh, from the state of Georgia, who's handing out 200 acre plots to people of European descent who are willing to come and homestead. So where does that land come from? Come from the Cherokee, right? It was after the state of Georgia forcibly removed Cherokee Indians from the state of Georgia and forced them to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. And then they just handed it out for free to white people. So in all these kind of, I can name a ton of other you know things, but in all of these ways, the society got built for the benefit of whites. Better schools, access to libraries, access to public amenities like parks and pools. All these things under Jim Crow were kind of segregated. The best were kind of allocated for white people. I, I think it's just no way we can be honest about our own, you know, just the plain history in front of us, much less the history we dig for, but just the plain history in front of us to say we haven't benefited. Um, and if that's been the case, then what's our responsibility? So I think even if you can't say, well, you know, it wasn't me, nonetheless, those benefits flow up through us. And then the question is, it's really about responsibility and justice. 
I think, are, are the questions that, uh, that we have to face, honestly. And, and, you know, how do we make amends? How do we repair the damage? I mean, that's the kind of plainest way to speak about it for these blatantly racist and unfair policies. I think, too, some of it speaks to our desire to have collectivist values, right? What helps others helps us all as part of the human condition. How do we, even though we weren't personally responsible, how do we work to try to undo or heal some of the injustices of the past? I don't think that's white guilt. I think it's acknowledging the privileges that we have had and trying to uh, to do the right thing. Forgive my daytime television question to uh, finish us off here, but in the book, what's surprised you? You are you're going you're doing a deep dive into American history, the white supremacist attitudes that have brought us to the modern day. I know your research had some aha eureka moments. Give me one or two. Well, I'll give you one. I start the book off with. There's a story. I think the stories in many cases were what stuck with me. So there's a compelling story I begin the book with um, about a guy named Robert Hickman, who's an enslaved man in Missouri. And he gets wind of the Emancipation Proclamation. He's, he's literate. He can read. So he's probably read a newspaper account about it. And even though it doesn't apply to Missouri, because it was not a, a state technically in rebellion uh, during the, the Civil War, and that's the only states the Emancipation proclamation applied to, he says, well, nonetheless, we're going to make a break for it. And he, he and his family uh, set off on a raft to get picked up by a Union steamboat and towed up to Minnesota. And so he finds freedom. But what he finds there, too, is another story. Uh, his story kind of intersects with this other story of the Dakota people, indigenous people in Minnesota, who are being forcibly removed from their land. So like at the same time, he and his group of friends and family are finding Liberty in Missouri, they are literally stepping off the boat and the next load that the boat is taking on are these, the remnants really of about 1600 uh, or start off at 1600, but half of them die, uh, Dakota people um, who are being herded on like cattle and forcibly shipped out of the state as uh, kind of part of Indian removal policies in Minnesota. And so like when you see these two things coming together, I think in kind of highlighting the contradictions that we have in the country, it's those things have kind of stayed with me. I'm a big fan. I, I loved the book. It, it was a little overwhelming. I found myself mm. like, uh, there's so much here that I, I did not realize. I mean, I, I thought I'd, you know, I thought I knew something after the last 15 years. I sort of emerged from a cocoon and I, you know, I started to sponge things up, but you've covered yeah. some things that I had no idea. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the fact that you are working to try to, I don't know, level the playing field. And part of that, I think, uh, stems into understanding our past. Dr. Robert P. Jones, I will link to you and the book in the description box of the show. You've been very generous with your time. Thanks so much. Oh, thanks so much. And it's great to see you in Tulsa. Follow The Thinking Atheist on Facebook and Twitter. For a complete archive of podcasts and videos, products like mugs and t-shirts featuring the Thinking Atheist logo, links to atheist pages and resources, and details on upcoming free thought events and conventions, log on to our website, thethinkingatheist.com. 